Hello, everyone, and welcome to this very special non-crypto episode where I have an opportunity to interview a longtime friend of mine, Tyler Hayes. Tyler is the CEO of Adam Limbs, who is developing along with Johns Hopkins University, the Adam Touch, which is the first mind-controlled bionic arm. It's really cool stuff. Um, it's real. And I had an opportunity to talk a little bit about the history, what he's going through, how he's bringing this arm to market. Uh, we do dive into crypto. We dive into little bit of politics, not too much, and we just overall get to catch up and, and talk about some really cool futuristic things that he's working on and the future of, of Bionic Arm. So amazing, cool, awesome stuff. Tyler's an amazing person. He's awesome, really smart, and I hope you guys all enjoy this episode, about an hour and 45 minutes. Please enjoy. Cool. It worked. Last time it broke. Um, all right, everyone, luck, live here with Tyler Hayes, CEO, Adam Limbs, um, an old friend. I mean, when, when, when was tech? It was 2014. So that was what, six years ago. Yeah. 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 We, six, we six met, years. When yeah. We met um, in Kansas city, in Kansas city. It was the beginning. It was, was it March? So it was cold. We were both living in, I know you were up in San Francisco. I was living mm -hmm. in Southern California. And yeah, two California boys go to Kansas. And it was cold, and we met there. I remember um, I wanted to start with this story because it was kind of a funny one um, or an interesting one. I remember you got – so we're at Techstars. It's 2014. You're sitting mm – -hmm. we have all the little tables, right? And you're mm -hmm. sitting in front of me so I can see – all I can stare at all day is like your huge 27-inch like iMac. And it was like sure. – it, like, it was like a late night, like probably like a Tuesday, like randomly. And you were watching the Interstellar trailer. Oh, yeah. Okay. No, I remember this. Yeah. yeah Do yeah, you remember yeah. this? And it was yeah. just like, I just remember, I remember you watching it with like these headphones on. And I was just like, my eyes just went over and I was like, I was like, what in the hell is he watching over there? This looks like the <laughs> dopest movie I've ever seen in my entire life. Yeah. Yeah. I remember what happened after this too. I don't Do know if I do. What happened after this? <laughs> I don't know if I do. Okay. So you saw it and then yeah. you came over and you're like what is that <laughs> i can't believe i remember this and then if you remember at the front of the building inside there was the huge indoor screen the theater screen oh a and you were like let's put it on the theater screen and then we took over the speakers and the theater screen for the whole yes. place so everyone yeah. in the building had to watch the interstellar tra trailer with us and it was what was the music it was that song it was that hot from uh, v for vendetta Yes. Yeah. I remember yeah. like I remember listening to that entire soundtrack from that film and it was like Hans Zimmer had just absolutely crushed it. And yeah. it was just, I don't know, there was something about that film that was like it was futuristic, but it wasn't. It was believable. You know, it was just a taste, I think, of like what you potentially thought the, the real future could be. There was the science side to it. Right. Um, which I thought was awesome, which kind of encapsulates, I think, you a little bit in the way that you think about the future and the way that you know and we'll we'll talk all about some of the other stuff and i, I listened to one of your other podcasts you did about this which i thought was awesome but you know mm -hmm. i wanted to, i want you to talk a little bit about um why you know first just tell us what adam adam limbs is right like i you know i i did a little bit of research like amazing i think it's awesome what you're doing but just 
tell everyone what a little bit about you know what you're doing, what it is, why you're why you're doing it. Yeah, at Adam Limbs. Uh, it's really easy to explain, but it's very hard to tell someone it's real unless you see it. We make mind-controlled bionic arms. And yes, yeah. they're 100% real. Uh, every part of it. <laughs> the mind control is real. The bionic is real. The arm is real. It's all real. And uh, you and I probably talked about this six years ago when we first met, you know, working on very different things. But I have always just like, I've always wanted to live forever myself. And I've always wanted to also relatedly cure death because like death and permanent injury just seem like these really outdated concepts to me. <laughs> and so yeah, basically saw this, uh, this is a much longer story, but the sort of the punchline here is over the last 10 years, there's this arm that was in research at Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab and uh, had taken in a hundred million dollars in funding from DARPA. I saw some videos of this thing and uh, reached out to them um, after I s we sold our last company to Amazon. And I was like, hey, do you need help kind of taking this thing to market? And then we fell in love, got married, and we put together a team. We're helping them bring this arm to market. And so kind of all these things coalescing of this really incredible technology, bringing together our own team of veterans from Silicon Valley, from Apple and Intuitive Surgical and NASA and stuff. And then obviously trying to make human body 2.0 and and cure death. Legitimately first stab towards let's make a new human body so you don't you don't have to worry about yours falling apart anymore. Okay, so many things in there. Um, what does yeah. what does you know a marriage between John Hopkins and and you kind of finding this and going after it? What does that entail? How does that work? Because I don't think a lot of people really understand it. You know, we we have a, a gut. We're looking at government grants, but for governments yeah. that are outside, not the United States, it, it seems like it's very difficult within the United States to find these grants, these things. How does that work with? I mean, John Hopkins, they they develop this, they go through it, and then you guys try and commercialize it and kind of what like kind of carry the ball forward. Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. It can get pretty dry really easily. The the process itself is called tech transfer, which is just sort of this dry process of, you know, getting the patents and the IP and the copyright and all that and working with the teams to make sure that the technology goes from the research institution to the commercial partner. Yeah. But what's what's cool about it, what's exciting, so like kind of what you're getting at. Um, how do you how do you get money for these things? Like, how do you actually bring something like this into the world? Because it's not like you and I can go down the street and be like, oh, there's some technology that I knew was brought out of a university. There's some technology I knew. Is, it's not a normal thing to just hear of things that are brought out of universities into the world. Right. And the reason for that is it's very difficult. It takes a lot of time and it's hard to get the money to bridge the gap. And so like in Silicon Valley, what does everyone do when they start a company? Well, they go get venture capital. Well, venture capital doesn't really work with the tech transfer industry. They're kind of almost allergic to each other a little bit. Um, and so government grants actually are a great method to bridge that gap. So we, for example, go for US government grants, not other governments, though we probably mm -hmm. would in the future. But I think to like, if anyone new stepped into this kind of industry today and they were like, how do I go get money from the government for this? I would say, you know, don't go read a bunch of blog posts. Don't try to work with a bunch of partners. Ask like one person who's done it and done it well, what they did. And they'll be able to take a year's worth of explaining it and put it into like 20 seconds, which is basically, you know, there's two immediate types of grants you can go for, SBIR and STTR. TT is in tech transfer. Gotcha. Uh, SBIR is more colloquially known as America's seed fund. So it's sort of the government saying, here's seed funding for things. And in these two different... Uh, paths you can go. They both allow you to do either a phase one or phase two or phase three 
type project with small, medium and large amounts of money and small, medium and large amounts of proof. And you can either do phase one right away, you can jump straight to phase two, you can do phase one and then phase two. But the point of all this is to say, if you wanted to do what I did and like go, if you saw some really cool video on YouTube, let's say of some uh, mind controlled drone, not a mind controlled arm, but a mind controlled drone, and you saw a video of this thing, uh, you would call the organization, step one, call the organization that makes it and say, hey, I'm interested in commercializing this with you. Step two, start the process of just talking with them about what do you, how do you want to do it? How do I want to do it? See if you share the same kind of crazy. Mm -hmm. Step three, when you figured out you share the same kind of crazy, go through all the standard legal stuff. Step four, probably spend a year working directly with them to get their knowledge transferred over to your organization, maybe even some of their team embeds into your team. And then after that, you had the standard kind of startup steps after that, you know, product market fit and going to market and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's a lot, it, it just seems like it's such a difficult, difficult problem to solve with, with the arm. And it's like, that is a government related. It's kind of like, you know, I, I don't think people know that like the cordless drill was developed by NASA. Right, because you can't have a cord out in space. I'm trying, you know, right. carry this cord with me too. Right, yeah. you know. So there's a lot of innovation I think that happens within the lines of the government that people might not realize or have access to. I mean, what, like, what division of the government is is this that even funds this? Well, so this was funded by DARPA, which is you know DOD basically. So it's DOD, okay. Yeah, and so the this specific program was called Revolutionizing Prosthetics 2009. Started in 2005. They called it 2009 because they thought they'd be done in four years. Obviously, that did not happen. No. And uh, they basically said, DARPA said, hey, everyone, we've got $120 million. We want to award this to anyone who thinks they can make a lifelike arm that they can give to war fighters returning home from war who've lost their limbs as well as civilians. And there really wasn't anything even close at that point. I mean, in 2005, like robotics was nowhere near human scale to that level. That's why they kind of had to do that. Uh, and there are many other organizations in the government that do this stuff, but this one was this one was DARPA for a reason. I don't think you would see like NSF or NIH putting a hundred million dollars into a lifelike robotic arm. You know, mm -hmm. there's like therapeutics or drug discovery or stuff like that. So why, why do you think they, they chose the arm? At the time, I think it was on trend. I mean, it's the government is on trend just like everyone else. So like right now, they're not really funding robotic arms or robotics that much. Mm -hmm. They're funding AI and any number of things that are popular right now. Back then it was robotics or drones. Yeah. And it, yeah, that, it just, it just seems like such a fundamental piece that you know, it's like if you were going to ask someone like, hey, you know, I know it's it's tough to think about, but like, hey, if you had to lose like your leg or your arm, I think most people would choose the leg like 100 percent. Right. Just oh, because yeah. it's it's so, so much more simple to replace, um, you know, just like just like the tan, like just grabbing something and like thinking about that. I mean, that seems like such a difficult problem I mean, how because you said mind like mind controlled, but it's really just. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, like, what's the signal? Like, how does it actually, how does it actually work? I mean, some people are like, they're lost out yeah. just below the elbow. Some people are lost a little bit, like a little bit right. higher, like there's different pieces there. So how does that, so how do you starting to think about how that kind of interfaces? Well, 
There's a lot to unpack in what you just said. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. So like we just uh, do it. We have a team and then I, you know, let it yeah. go. <laughs> so basically it's AI. No, uh, yeah. Well, to the first thing you said, yeah, I mean, I would totally rather lose a leg than an arm, right? I think that's totally true because an arm is really a hand and a hand is so much more complex. And I, you know, I don't mean to diminish the, the, the value of having a prosthetic leg. I think if you lose your leg, that's a horrible experience. It's traumatic. No one wishes that on anyone, but it is just mechanically easier to recreate a leg than it is to recreate an arm because the arm is really a hand, you know, all this fine control. And that's why we hadn't had robotic hands to this point until now. So yeah, I mean, you'd rather lose a leg, you'd rather lose neither. But the reality is, especially as we move forward, you know, people, people actually have a lot of issues that cause them to consider even electively amputating. And they sort of don't right now just because the technology isn't good enough to replace it. Like just people, for example, who have nerve damage, you know, um, or like people who get their arm or leg crushed, but they can't amputate it uh, for like balance reasons or just because it costs money, you know? So there's a lot of, it's actually a lot, much larger amount of people I think who would if we truly had an arm or a hand that was as good as a human arm and hand would just say, rip mine off, give me this one instead. It's, yeah, it's kind of a crazy be, job. I was thinking about that. I went for a run this morning. And I was like, what, what other thing, what can I ask Tyler? Like outside of a thousand things. And I was like, what, like, do you think that this could get to a point at some point where, I mean, it is just better. Like it would be better just kind of like a neural, like a neural link okay. type thing. You're like, I, like, I wouldn't even think, for two seconds, it's like, even as like a baby, someone's like, all right, put that thing in. Like, that's like getting your immunity shot for chicken pox. Like, is it, could it be better at some point where like the first sign of like injury, someone's like, okay, what, what, like how old were you when you replaced that? It's like, oh, I did it around 30 or I did it around 40 or someone's like, man, I knew it was better. I just did it at like 18. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't think it's a matter of if it's definitely a matter of when, mm -hmm. because you can just look at how things have trended over time. So, you know, Hundreds of years ago, Leonardo da Vinci created his like sketch of a mechanical man and didn't even create it mechanically. And then a hundred years ago, we had, you know, in the civil war era and a hundred years ago, we had this sort of body powered prostheses. I don't know if you've seen these, but these are so, oh man, they're the worst. It's like literally, it's like if you want to open and close your hand, there's a cable that runs up your arm to your shoulder. And as you move your shoulder forward or backward, it opens oh. and closes your hand like a, like a pulley. Yeah. And that was kind of what we had up until like 50 years ago, 60 years ago. And then, then we finally had the first computer aided prosthetics, but not really. Uh, it was still basically body powered, but just kind of better looking. And then 20 years ago, we had this breakthrough, which was the myoelectric era of prostheses, which was now we finally could put computer chips inside of arms and we could use electrodes to listen to your muscle activity. So if you physically flex your bicep or tricep, if you flex your bicep, it flexes the elbow. If you flex your tricep, it extends the elbow. Mm -hmm. And like, that's where we were basically until our arm. Uh, and that begs the question then it's like, how do you move a hand and fingers with that sense, that type of control where there's an electrode on your right. bicep and one on your tricep? Well, literally what you do is you press a button on the arm to switch it from elbow mode to grip mode and then you flex your bicep to rotate one direction through the grips and you flex your tricep to rotate the other direction through the grips. And there's about 10 to 20 grips. There's like a pinch grip, a grasp, and that's it. Mm -hmm. That's how prosthetics exist today. That's like the most advanced prosthetic today. So anyway, 
Then you have ours now, uh, which is, you know, full finger dexterity, full arm and hand and finger control. And it's intuitive. You don't have to physically awkwardly flex and do a CrossFit, you know, workout every day just to move your arm. But like, for example, I mean, you're a pretty strong guy. Do you know how much you can bicep curl? Like just with one arm? No, it's been six years, Tyler. (laughs) No, I'm still, still a lot. I mean, I probably like without injury, like to feel comfortable. I mean, I could probably do like a, like a 40 pound weight, like feeling pretty comfortable. Uh, But anything above that would be like, you know, like unless you had a balance in their side, like you'd be like, that's not a lot. I mean, you've been injured. Yeah. Same. I, I mean, I could maybe do 30, 35 and like there's a, and then there's max versus, you know, a whole set. So our right. arm can bicep curl 45 pounds. Yeah. Which is like so, a very strong person. Right. And so yeah. it's, it's Arnold, already better in some ways. Yeah. No, well, by it, the way, I actually, I have, I don't have the arm here right now, but I do have something. Yeah. I was going to say, grab something we can look at. Uh, here we go. So the arm is at the lab right now. So I don't have the actual arm with me. Um, but so you were asking about, like how do you control it? Yeah. So this is called a myoband. This has electrodes on the inside. They're EMG electrodes, just like your doctor would use to listen to your signal. E- your EMG or EKG? EMG? Is there a difference? EMG. There's a difference? Yep. Electromyography. Myography. Okay. So basically the, the signals in your muscles themselves. Um, so you have <clears throat> the way it works, whether you're an amputee or a non-amputee actually. So you, Joe, could use the arm right now too. So what you do is you take this band, you slip it on, and then now when you think the signals travel down your nerves normally, if you're an amputee, you still have those nerves. They're just like wires inside your body with electrical signals. They run down. The band now hears those signals emanating through your muscles actuating, then sends those signals over the robotic arm, which uses AI to intuitively move. And so that's how you're able to get such fine level control and in real time to your point about, you know, can it be better and, and how is it even possible? Yeah. And, and so what stage are you guys at? I mean, obviously they had built the arm. They spent a ton of time and effort putting this thing together. Now you're towards, is it like prototyping or like commercialization? Like, is that, is that the strategy to kind of think about commercialization how, and that's kind of informing a little bit of what the prototype looks like. Where exactly are you in the journey right now? Yeah. It's, you know, like, um, you know, do you remember AC Propulsion, the company that Tesla originally was with the prototype? Yeah, for sure. So think of it sort of like the stage the AC Propulsion was at right when they became Tesla, when Elon came in. So sort of like they had a prototype. It's a really good prototype. It's even mm-hmm. been used by a lot of people, but it needs to be made into an actual product at this point. So in our case, we have a prototype that's been used by, you know, about 20 people in clinical trials. And one guy took it home for a whole year. I mean, he beat the crap out of the thing. Now it is time to make it into a product. And broad strokes, that means things like, you know, an industrial design that looks like a human arm, not a black cylinder. Right. Uh, it, it means reduce the cost in a lot of stuff and not just through volume, but actually, you know, say, Hey, here are actuators and gearboxes and stuff from five or 10 years ago. There's newer, cheaper ones now. Just put those in instead. And it is, even though it's been, you know, in clinical trials use with about 20 people, it's, it's a lot of user feedback and a lot of, you know, just, just they could do with any product, you know, just literally all day, every day testing with people and putting it through all the paces because it has to be, attached to your body. I mean, there's a very high bar for, for these products. You know, you can't, 
sort of like being a pilot or a lawyer. Like there's not really a room for error. You can't screw up with this stuff, you know? Uh, and so we need people to be using it all day, every day and testing well, I think, out for safety, for security. I think you're kind of holding yourself to that bar, which I think is important, which is, you know, kind of like Tesla of, you know, I, I think that one of the best, you know, examples is like the solar roof, right? Like, you know, I, I worked for a, like building materials company at one point and, you know, it was like, they're, they're like, they're like, we can't figure it out. You can't do it. You know, you can't make a soul, like you can't make a roofing shingle look like a solar panel. It's not possible. Or at least they're like, it's not possible yet. Right. And, and Elon thought, well, no one, no one wants to put these stupid, huge things on top of their house. I have one. It looks like shit. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> it's like, and, and making it beautiful. And so I think like maybe that's part of the reason why maybe someone's like, you know, I don't want that thing. You know, I don't want someone looking mm -hmm. at me, you know, and they forget the human element um, of emotion when it comes, like when it comes to like your arm or anything that's on you. And they're just like, well, it's easier to hide. Maybe if I don't, if I don't have something there or, you know, it's just like, there's yeah. those things that if you're thinking about that in, in the design, that's going to change everything, right? If it's beautiful and, and it's functional and it's like, it sounds like that's, the direction that you're pushing this could have said it better myself yeah 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 100 percent. i i don't think that that level of thinking exists today in the in the industry i think you don't need to be into the prosthetics industry or into bionics to know that they don't look great like we've all kind of seen them in the world we also know that we see a lot of people not wearing them which is sort of an indicator that they're probably not that great like, why would someone choose to not have a leg or an arm? Right. Even if it's sort of maybe 12% helpful, right? Or 15% yeah. helpful. Maybe it's not the best thing, but they're they're choosing to not have that 12% because of the human yeah. side of it is what they're, what's happening. sounds like. I, uh, I think I shared this, you know, publicly already in a couple of places, but like, there's this really damning statistic about only one out of five arm amputees using a prosthetic. And four out of five leg amputees, or yeah, leg amputees use one. So why why is it that eighty percent of leg amputees use one, but only twenty percent of arm amputees use one? Like, doesn't make any sense. And it's because they're not good enough. They don't look good. They can't do much. And then, man, I learned this super like damning joke in the industry. Uh, I went to an amputee conference last year, uh, and I met like a, about a thousand amputees over a few days, and. I talked to a lot of arm amputees and like half of them minimum weren't wearing one. And of the ones who had one, they like were literally carrying it sometimes, not even wearing it. And so I started asking people like, why, what is going on here? What, what, I get that the statistic exists, but like why even at a conference are you not kind of showing off your arm or like, why isn't there some, that sort of, you know, camaraderie that exists of people, you know, in, in your sort of local environment, you know, you go to a car, show or a car conference like people really show off their cars like why are not people showing off their prosthetics here mm -hmm. and man what i heard this from probably at least five or six people there's literally a joke in the industry arm amputees will be like oh yeah no i have an arm prosthetic it's pretty sweet it's in the closet let me get it for you i was like oof that's not tells good. You everything you need to know yeah so they're, you know, they're not thinking about it. And this, these are like billion dollar corporations, by the way, that make these prosthetics today. And this is the Let's standard somehow. I want to talk a little bit about that, like startup versus corporation. And I, and I think 
a lot of people that are working at a corporation today or work at a big business might not realize. And and for me kind of, and I don't know how much you've done it over the last couple of years, but I, I've, I have hopped from startup into big corporate world back to startup. And like, I've done that a little bit in my career. Yeah. And the, the one thing that I've noticed is just the only competitive advantage a startup has is like decision, the like speed of decision-making like that. That's it. And like there's, cause yeah. there's absolutely, especially having worked in like automotive a little bit and which is now just mobility with like there, you know, there's like the Fords and the GMs and the Chrysler's type people of the world that are actually competing against like the Ubers and Lyfts of the world. And those worlds have kind of merged over the last 10 years. And there's absolutely no reason that Uber should exist. Not with, not with Ford and GM and billions of excess in, and they're, and they're used to innovation too, but they're used to innovation oh, yeah. in one straight line. And I always like, you know, I, I remember, never forget my, like Doug Lambert told me this, he goes, our company's month is another company's year. And it's because you can make decisions quickly and Uber can make 50 decisions. They can ship product 28 times in a month where a big corporation could just literally set up one meeting. Like, hey, we'll just get we'll just get this one meeting set up, and that meeting gets delayed like a week. Meanwhile, and so it like, how are you thinking about yeah. that kind of navigating these? Because I know in that space, I mean, at least you know there's there's kind of pharma which is adjacent, but like within some of those kind of R and D and those big companies, I mean, how are like are you thinking about competition? I mean, do you have you just have access to this, and it's like, hey, we're we're getting pushing forward, like we're the only ones that have access to commercialize this thing. I mean, one hundred percent, we think about competition. But <clears throat> I think first in broad strokes, startups just shouldn't index on competition because yeah. A, if you do anything worthwhile, you're gonna have competition. It's just gonna happen. Uh, and B, if you focus on your competition, you're focusing on the wrong thing, which is your customers and your own philosophies. And then specifically with us, I just think the hand that we've been dealt is the incumbents that exist in this industry have chosen to not innovate. They consciously, outwardly, explicitly have said, we're not really gonna innovate. The only way we're gonna innovate is through requiring startups to innovate. Okay, that's interesting. That's one way to do it, but that's a really slow and hard pace of innovation. And so we consciously came in and said, yeah, we're not gonna do that, right? Like we're not gonna try to aim for some kind of exit with, a, with an incumbent because then we know the moment we get acquired by them, we're gonna die because they're gonna set the tone internally for us. Uh, and so we basically just said everything that they do, we're doing the opposite. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm just like, uh, they want to make commodity products. We're going to make luxurious, no compromises, high end products. They want to focus on, you know, really slow innovation over five years. We're going to release a product every year. They want to focus on being, you know, really, uh, medical and not listening to the patient so much as the doctor and just kind of getting money from insurance. Whereas we said, even if insurance isn't going to, you know, guarantee that they'll reimburse it up front, we're going to do what we know is right and is best. And we're going to make the product that we know people really want, because we know that if we make the best product, and then we have an army of amputees who want that and, and quadriplegics and other people outside of those industries, clinicians and prosthetists, as well as roboticists, if they all want that, then insurers will say, okay, well, we're going to reimburse. We have to reimburse. You know, when, when you have 10,000 amputees banging down your door saying, look, this is the thing, this is the best thing, then that gives us a lot more ability to navigate the space. And to your point, you know, it's, 
use you use your weaknesses as a strength. If you're small, then you're more nimble. You know, if you are, if you don't have as many team members, you can be a little bit more stealthy and quiet. And like for example, we were private about this for like a year and a half, mm-hmm. which is like super. You know, you know me. That's like super. Uh, it, almost anathemic to me. Like I love yeah. to build in public, like not saying anything for a year and a half was the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. <laughs> by far. I mean, it was, I could see it like seeping out of you through Twitter. Just like those little kind of cryptic, like this is done. This is done. You're like, any way I could, you're like, well, if I'm general about it, I could talk about it. So I still need yeah. to talk about <laughs> yeah. something. And so I could just kind of feel it kind of coming out of you, which is, I think that's important, but I mean, I think that's why you're in the position you are is because you're trying to push this forward in a very public way that, that, you know, would create a narrative, would create a story and people attached to stories. And that's what you need um, is the yeah. story of these people that have, you know, been kind of down and out um, with respect to innovation and technology in this space. You know, I, I think about, you know, how much we've innovated in other spaces, you know, in our country and how much money we've spent on certain things and, you know, especially something tied so closely, I think to vets, you know, and it's like, a, you know, what was there like out of the, out of the um, beta testers, or I don't know if you kind of call it like the beta testers or prototyping over that year. I mean, we're, we're a lot of these people like veterans, mm-hmm. like army, Navy or anything. I mean, <clears throat> yeah, I don't remember the exact proportion. I think it's about half and half, it's about yeah. half were veterans and half were civilians. One was actually uh PBS NewsHour anchor Miles O'Brien was one of them, and he made a segment about it. He's not at NewsHour anymore, but uh, you know he gave it. I give him a ton of credit because you know he lost his arm, awful experience, and then he not only made a segment about it, but he used the arm himself. You know, during the segment, he really put himself out there. So I think that was really cool of him to do that. The um, The thing with with veterans and with the VA is, you know, the VA is actually a pretty wonderful healthcare system. Like, if you're a veteran, they basically say, like, look, if you need care, we'll give it to you. Now, they have a lot of issues, no doubt. I mean, a lot of big systems just do in general. But I would also give them a lot of credit for just kind of saying, you know, if you if you lost an arm in a war, you know, we'll give you as many arms as you need. We'll give you five prosthetics, whatever it takes. Mm-hmm. And so that is really cool. Uh, but when you don't have manufacturers and companies designing great products to start, they're not getting delivered the products that they need. And so there's still, that's where that gap comes from. And to kind of dovetail with the point you mentioned earlier about, you know, like wh- why are we, why, why do we have reusable rockets and electric cars, both of which are amazing things and I want them, but we don't have bionic arms. You know, we're spending billions yeah. of dollars on things and, and, you know, take away even like the good things like that, like, you know, war, depending on your thoughts, just tons of money going into that. But also the, the billions and billions of dollars going into Facebook ads every day. Again, I, I like toys to exist in the world and I want a general innovation, but clearly this, the scales are a little off here. Like at some, at some point, and actually I think sort of never, we, we never really actually invested in innovation as much as we thought. I think that's kind of a, like a story we tell ourselves, especially in this country. I think there is a lot that comes from the government, but like even NASA, for example, like the total, the NASA budget every year is basically like $20 billion, which is one WhatsApp acquisition by Facebook. That's the annual NASA budget. Yeah, for like 12 total. people also, by the way. 
Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it took the the biggest the budget's ever been for NASA was during the Apollo program it was about fifty billion a year, and so if you take the entire operating budget over time of NASA since its inception, it's it's still less than like the valuation of all of the fan companies right now. So it's weird that we think that we spend a lot of money on these things when we don't. Um, and I think that we need to really, we, we need to get people in these spaces to think about these things. And there are a lot of very smart, very passionate people out there who want to do this stuff. Tesla is such a fantastic example in its early days. I mean, you know, Martin and, and Elon and that whole team just saying, there is a massive pile of dead bodies on the floor of electric cars. Like, I mean, you remember that movie in the 90s, Who Killed the Electric Car? I don't. There was this, there was this documentary that was made in the late 90s, early 2000s called Who Killed the Electric Car? And it was this really damning documentary because Ford and Chevy and everyone had tried making electric cars and Toyota and Honda and everyone. And basically in the US, a number of parties ranging from the government to traditional corporate interests to crony capitalistic interests lobbied with billions of dollars to get electric cars killed. And that's why electric cars sort of started happening in the 90s and then died. It, yeah. was, it was literally a, a very explicit movement by people with a lot of money that, to just kill it. And when Elon and, and the Tesla team came out and said, you know, look, we're going to do this. That's why I don't think people remember this. Back then, no one believed they were going to pull it off. And everyone criticized them for their approach specifically too, of saying, we're going to make a luxurious, no compromises, exotic sports car first, not a commodity car that everyone can buy. And everyone's like, well, where are you going to get the volume? How are you going to do this? You know, and, and I think they were really, really smart for doing that. They, they came yeah. up with the boldest possible statement said, if we start with a car that people just want and lust after in general, because it looks good and it's attractive and it goes fast. And then we say, by the way, it's electric. And they want it. And it, they nailed it. And it's hard. It was really hard. And they barely yeah. threaded that needle. But it was a little inverse. Didn't do that. It was yeah. inverse than what you would. And I think that's what they've done well is everything seems to be a little inverse, right? Not, they don't have a marketing budget. They're not out there plowing, you know, 70, yeah. $80 million a year into banner ads, which is like just beyond like my comprehension for why companies are doing things like this, right? Or pumping them into Facebook ads that people actually aren't seeing, right? And mm -hmm. I, it, it's just a different way to think about building a business. And I think I like the point you made about, you know, a, a good example would be, you know, I like, I love sports and like, I love football. I love all of these things. They, they just had like released and then showed the brand new LA Rams stadium, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, five, I think the stadium itself was like 2 billion, the land around it, 5 billion, somewhere in the two to $5 billion range. I think it's going to be five once it's all said and done. And we're now remote learning everywhere in California. I mean, how many iPads could we have bought to give to kids at home and increased internet speeds? You know, it's just the priorities. And so I, that's why when it comes to startups and then sales, right? It's like, if you're an entrepreneur and you're trying to even do something good, you still need to sell, right? You still mm -hmm. need to get, the innovation needs to get into the mainstream. So you need to make it cool. Yeah. And so I think that's like a very tough line to, to kind of balance, especially if you're trying to build something that you're trying to do good with, right? But you're also saying, I still need to go out and sell this thing. And sometimes 
selling to people feels unnatural because they're like, well, I'm just trying to do something good. I just put my head down. I build this thing. But that's not the case. You need to make it cool. Yeah. And I feel like Tesla has done that. But it seems like you're kind of taking a page out of their book a little bit the way you're thinking about this. A little bit. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we're lucky. We're, we're fortunate that they had charted that path. So at least some people kind of get that. They get mm -hmm. the whole Roadster, then Model S, then Model 3 thing. I think... Like I my, still cri think my, cri my crypto, uh, I got my crypto thing on here. Bit I took the bit. I didn't want to say anything. Yeah. <laughs> oh, look at that. Wait, where <laughs> I have Why not get one of these? <laughs> I'll send you a hat. <laughs> I, I'm assuming I, that's a 10 a.m. beer, by the way. Oh yeah, no fire. You got to fire it up. No, I just like my drinks really cold, so I always have like the koozie. <laughs> no matter <Yeah>. what. <laughs> um, I want to. I want to just kind of like switch gears a little bit. Um. And I, I was listening to one of your other podcasts and, and you were talking and this kind of resonated with me a little bit with the investor group of venture capitalists that invest in, mm -hmm. in this type of, you know, startup or venture. Right. And it kind of resonated with me because being in the crypto space, I kind of went through that, especially at the beginning with, you know, you'd go talk to people and be like, well, I thought this crypto thing was like over with, like, you know, I thought Bitcoin was done, you know, and like sure. they they were just completely missing this huge subset of people that were so passionate and had been wildly building for the last year and knew that this was going to be the next big thing. And um, so you have to kind of just write off, like, you know, you have to try to meander and find your way to this kind of smaller subset of people that are really excited about, you know, what yeah. you're doing. And so how did, like, how did you, figure that path out and how do you find some of those people and what are those people like that are the ones that end up, you know, I like how you kind of said, like, you both have the same type of crazy. I mean, that makes a yeah. lot of sense to me. So like, but how do you find those people? Well, the easiest way is to just put a flagpole on the ground and say, this is what we're doing. And then people who see it, if they, they just self-elect, but you know, not that many people are probably near your flagpole. So you need to go find them somehow. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, share the crazy has always been my kind of philosophy for sure, both in hiring people and hiring investors and all that kind of stuff. Um, with VC specifically, uh, I don't think even people in Silicon Valley know about this that much because uh, we're so used to like VC today in Silicon Valley mostly is synonymous with like invest in software and SaaS products, right? Yeah. It's like, it's not like we don't talk about people who invest in like, Cruise, for example, or you know anyone else uh, that's doing something you know, like Planet Labs, maybe. Except in the, unless they're like a generalist fund, unless they're like Andreessen Horowitz or Sequoia or someone. And like, oh yeah, did you hear Sequoia did a deal in Planet Labs? They're like, cool, I guess, right? Like, <laughs> I just assume they do some of those deals every year. But most people in Silicon Valley seem to not even know that there are these funds specifically for like deep tech or frontier tech or emerging tech. And uh, there's not that many of them, but those are the people to go to if you're doing something that is pretty crazy, like right on the fringe. And it's got some level of hardware and software, maybe some research in it, you know, something from the academic world. I'll say this though, I think even those funds typically only kind of come in around like series A or B. Like they don't really do a lot of seed stage unless maybe they knew the founder before or they just, it was one of those deals they just couldn't let go for some reason. But I think what I would suggest honestly to most founders to like find the people who share your crazy for an emerging tech technology product like this is 
you probably just need to like hit the streets super hard. And I don't mean run a process of like go raise a round. I mean, build your product in public and try to get as much surface area as you can. And then you'll start to get people, you get the snowball built. Uh, to your point, like Tesla doesn't spend $80 million a year on marketing. That doesn't mean they don't do marketing. They just don't do advertising. What they do is create insanely awesome products and then make videos about them. And then the videos just speak for themselves because the products are so cool. And then it resonates yeah. with people, you know, and then they do, you know, in-person events where they do launches and stuff like that. Like that's marketing. But yeah, I, I would never be the person who would say, if you build it, they will come. I think that's delusional. Like if you just build a great product, do not expect that people are just going to come find it. You still need to go sell it to people. But it's a pretty simple loop of make a great thing, tell people about it. Make a great thing, tell people about it. And as you do that, if you've truly made a great thing that people love, they will start to elect, you know, themselves. Like, I don't, you know, I don't know how much I could say, but like, I get DMs, you know, sometimes just from people who are like, hey, can I just like write you a check? Can I invest in your company, basically? You know, whether it's an angel or it's or it's a VC, like, or just like someone who like saw a video on Facebook or something. <laughs> you know? It happens. Yeah, totally. Uh, I I don't think there is a clear path for that stuff. And I think that's kind of my point about how much this stuff sucks too. Like, you know, there there is a massive gap between getting something prototyped and researched and even trialing it with people and then getting it productized. You mm -hmm. really need this like non-dilutive government funding for this first part, because VCs will they VCs will not fund research. They will not fund prototyping. Can you can you imagine you trying to start market. that from like the like the idea paper napkin? Can you imagine? No way. <laughs> yeah, not possible. I, I mean, you would. No, I'm saying you would just be you'd be diluted to to the ground, and you would have nothing left, and you would just be so tired from like just raising money that you wouldn't have been able to focus on the product whatsoever. Yeah, absolutely not possible. No. <laughs> But I mean, with I'm curious, even like when you went out and you're talking about this, you know, going doing something in the crypto space, and the reaction being, well, I sort of thought that was that was over. Like that trend is is gone now. You know, what's the pushback that you get there? Like, how do you navigate that space? No, it's still it's still there. There's still a lot right? a lot of people that are yeah. still. I mean, we're still, and that's why I always say with crypto is we're still very early stages with this. And it's a weird industry because. You know, two years ago, you could be, you know, in line at FedEx and someone's like, hey, man, and like, which one are you buying? And like talking to their friend and they're like talking about crypto. And it just it just was like a wildfire that just went out across the world. But it was so small just because the way it contracted very quickly and people didn't know what it was. And it was so disruptive or, or potential. It had the potential to be so disruptive to kind of, you know, just governments in general and money is mm -hmm. such a touchy thing that, um, you know, it kind of contracted, but then they, we had this kind of year and a half of people that have just been building and building cool products and cool financial tools. And, you know, I, I just kind of talking about listening to one of your other podcasts, you're we talking about hacking and people kind of hacking into arms or hacking into like mm -hmm. Neuralink uses BLE still like, I, which still, I can't believe like, are we pat like how, who's someone to have a solve for BLE? Like, are we past this yet? I guess not. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no. crypto could, there's so many different industries that crypto can disrupt and like, you know, privacy is one of them, identity and all of these things. And we're just at the kind of early stages, but I just think people are so adverse to change 
And like you're saying in the kind of traditional VC model of they, it's, if they don't understand, a lot of times people are still like, if I don't understand it, I don't invest in it, which I don't know, understand how like a venture capitalist could survive that way. Cause you're investing yeah. in things that you shouldn't understand. And it's like that, I guess that level of trust that <laughs> comes from meeting people and, and kind of getting out there. Yeah. But yeah, it's just a different, I think it's just a different way of thinking about raising is, is seeing these, like this amazing product that someone else kind of started and then picking the ball up with it. And, and that's why it's like the government does do a lot of these things. You know, they do invest in innovation. Yeah. They do a lot of these things. And I think people are always thinking these are bad things, but like you're saying like $20 billion, that's nothing. Like that's yeah. nothing to be investing I, in, in something. People, um, it's, I, in Silicon Valley, people think that the only funding source is VC. In the on the East Coast, people think the only funding source is PE. Uh, in the Midwest, people think the only funding source is country club investors. You know, so everyone's got their sort of like bias. And if, if you step back one level and just abstract it all to just being funding sources, you just say, okay, well, who's the right group of, for us for the stage we're at right now? And if you're at the researcher prototyping stage for like really advanced frontier technology, and I'm only talking about frontier technology here, not software, you know, not like that, um, then you probably need someone who can give you non-dilutive funding, you know, the government or maybe a family office or nonprofit or someone. And then to get it to market, you need a combination of that plus maybe VC, PE, whatever else. And then once you have a business running and you're scaling, then sure, VC or, you know, venture debt or whatever. But yeah, I, uh, the, the crypto thing with Bitcoin specifically, but really just crypto in general always kind of made me... <laughs> laugh a little bit because I was the kind of guy, I mean, you and I talked about this a little bit years ago <clears throat> before we were both super public about our like opinions in this space, but, and before it was even super, super hot. But I mean, I was literally mining Bitcoin, like whatever it was like almost 10 years ago. Like I was just that guy who, you know, growing up, I, I built PCs. I would always have like five to 10 different PCs in my basement, you know, just running them at different, doing different things, running like SETI at home and folding at home you know, all these sort of like, you know, community cont contributor projects, just yep. let your PC run, give it the cycles. And at the time, there was just this crazy thing called Bitcoin. And I was like, oh, that's internet money or something. Like no one really knew what it was back then. Like, it's, yeah. you know, no, honestly, no one really knew what it was when it first started. And 100%. a bunch of us were just mining it, right? Just like, I don't know what I'm doing. I was just mining it. And actually, I will share you the greatest horror story in my life that I've never shared publicly. <laughs> uh, I can't believe I'm about to say this, actually. So I, you, you're probably you're going to kill me for saying this. So <laughs> the first the first business I ever officially started was called Tyler the Techie. And it was a PC repair business. It was like a competitor to Geek Squad. Yeah. And uh, it was super fun. I had a great time doing it right out of college. And I that was the first company I ever uh, like sold slash gave to someone else basically, and then moved to San Francisco. But over the time of running that business, I, uh, acquired a lot of computer parts and computers that people wouldn't want anymore. So at any given point I had like 10 PCs that I didn't need. Um, and at one point I started mining, you know, folding at home and Bitcoin and stuff like that. And, uh, I kept a bunch of Bitcoin on an ex some external hard drive. And then when I moved to San Francisco, I formatted all my hard drives. Nice. And uh, so I don't even know what the amount was that I burned. But at this point, it's probably the single dumbest thing I've ever done in my life is I definitely so, burned 
non-trivial amount of Bitcoin. You might be you might be responsible for the million missing coins that are out there right now. It's just all just <laughs> you formatted into just you know the ether of dark matter. Yeah, you, you can blame me. You can you can get me at uh, you can email me at uh, Satoshi at bsari.com. <laughs> I, I mean, it's it's insane. I mean, there's like the pizza story, you know, from mm -hmm. from many years ago, and I mean, everyone's got a story like that. I mean, I bought. You know, my friend and I had a bunch of Ethereum and I would just buy him like we would go get like a burger once a week or something like that. And I would just like send him like, you know, a bunch of Ethereum, like like you said, non-trivial, like, you know, to the point where like he felt so bad that like I, I like I get to go to USC games for free right now. Like when they when they come back, oh just because it was like, you know, these are just burgers and everything else. And But I think that the cool part about that with the space is you had a lot of people and this is kind of like the democratization of allowing other like normal people to invest in you know what i i'm starting to call kind of like these micro economies which each company really is turning into mm -hmm. um, but you've got you know there there were younger people who are 14 15 years old that now are 18 or 19 and i mean they they made a million dollars they made a hundred thousand dollars they made fifty thousand dollars and that and i think people forget that yeah sure you're not maybe they're not retiring but two hundred fifty thousand dollars at like 17 is a much bigger difference than $250,000 at like 61 when you're trying to retire, right? Mm -hmm. Like the 40 year investment horizon that someone has, even with that 250,000, that could be a retirement completely. I mean, it is at that age. And so it just, oh it brought God, this yeah. wealth from these different things and this kind of spark of innovation to this younger generation that I think is now out there that is super excited. And when we talk about just the hoops and the different things that you have to go through and I mean, you know, you're at this point mm -hmm. a very seasoned entrepreneur and I, you know, I've been through a couple myself and we mm -hmm. know how difficult it is to start something. And it's not just going out and finding the money. It's, you know, that initial leap, you know, you're saying, Hey, I'm making a good money. I'm trying to start a family. Like I'm just going to boom, I'm going to jump and do this thing and go take five steps back. And that's a very difficult thing for people to do. And I think benefits are a big, big side of that right? You're, you're tied to your company. If you leave your company, you don't have benefits, right? Like if you're yeah. like, you're saying like if something happens to you and you need this, this yeah. healthcare. Now I can't go start a company because and I that, can't go. It's crazy. Yeah. That only started in, you know, the 1950s too, right? Like people are just oblivious to, to the history of these things. Like it was not always that way in the U S you know, that was like that in itself was a reaction to the great depression and world war two. And then post world war two, you know, we passed these policies to make sure that people had insurance by attaching it to their employment. And back then your employment was when you got a job, you kept it your whole life basically. Right. And and that's just not the reality. And so, you know, to fight to keep those things now seems just super ignorant. Cause it's like the context for it is not is not that it, it's universal that you should have benefits and tied to tied to your employment, like health insurance tied to your employment. It's just that in a moment that was the right way to do it. So yeah, I I a hundred percent agree. I actually I have a friend who, uh, like, he got some amount of money in a bar mitzvah when he was, you know, however old when you you are when you do bar mitzvah. And his his one of his siblings at the time was just like, "You should put all that money into this Apple stock." And he's like, "What?" He's like, "This company, Apple, they make computers. You should put it in Apple stock." And he's like, "Okay, you know," because his parents were like, "You can't spend the money. You need to just like invest it in something." Mm -hmm. So he put, let's, let's just, I don't remember the exact amount it was, let's just call it $10,000, like some bar mitzvah money. He put $10,000 in Apple 20 years ago. Like. This is looking pretty good yeah. right now. 
yeah, he's he's looking great right now for sure. <laughs> and but that's that's so out of the realm of possibility for most people. To, like the the whole point of I think a lot of what I see in decentralized finance and economies is it's not just about the fact that we're trying to make things faster and internet based. It's also like literally we need to democratize access and we need to give more people the ability to do these things. It is, it's absurd to me right now, for example, that uh, unaccredited investors can't invest in startups unless the startup files a regulation CF crowdfunding campaign with the SEC. And even then they can only raise a million dollars in unaccredited money. And anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about here, I just mean like, there's accredited investors who basically the government just says, you know, if you make $300,000 a year or you have more than a million dollars in assets, you're accredited. And therefore you are, we allow you to invest in riskier deals like startups. But if you're unaccredited, you just straight up can't like that. Is I mean, th gatekeeping. think about, yes. Think about the, like it is an exact rule that is, is taking opportunity away from people that have less money. Cause literally we're talking about right. money right now. I'm not like, we don't even need to be like esoteric about it. Like we're talking about money and investing the money. And if you have more money, you're allowed to invest in these quote unquote, yes, risky mm -hmm. assets. But like, you know, Anderson, like you said, Anderson Horowitz is there for a reason. Founders Fund is there for a reason. Like some right. of these angel investors are there for a reason. And sure, there's a lot of people that have been burned, but there's also people that are just dying to get access to be LPs to these funds. And they can kind of pick and choose. Why is that? Because it works, right? Like it works, like yeah. the Uber example, like it, it works like investing in people works and you're, so you're saying now we're not going to let these people on the other side, less than a million or less than 250,000. Like there's no one in these categories. They're left behind even more. And so that, yeah. that's what does get me excited. That's why I'm very passionate about crypto is, is just the opportunity gap will close because of things like this. And I think, you know, the United States needs to be, they need to tiptoe around some of these things and figure the regulation out because they are kind of the, global currency. They're the world leader in a lot of these stuff, financing activities, people follow their lead, but the rest of the world is just grabbing onto this, this space. Mm -hmm. And they're just, they're deregulating and they're allowing people just to run. And sure there's, you know, it's like the, the Silicon Valley, it's kind of, what is the term? It's like break things and and then kind of like move figure out break things. Yeah. Move fast and break things. It's yeah. like, that's the rest of the world is doing that. And we're not doing that here. And that's, that's scary yeah. a little bit. I think so too. I, I think it's super scary. And I think the point of it is not to be fear mongering, but the point is, hey, you know, we've been coddled a little bit. That's okay. Wake up. Uh, you know, America has been a, the, the US is a, is a great country. There's a lot of other great countries too. And they're also trying to do things and innovate. And there's no reason why we should slow down for any reason. I think that's kind of the thing that always got me like as a kid was like, why are we doing anything less than breakneck innovation like what's the reason someone explain it to me like literally we have the money we have the people there's 7 billion people on the planet 400 million of them are in the US you're telling me there's not even you know 1% even just 4 million of those people in the US who would just elect to be like i want to work 24/7 as hard as possible always on the hardest problems like it's absurd of course if we could create an entire core of people who want to do this stuff and yet you know we we just don't because the reality is the way the system is constructed, which was about 250 years ago, we uh, you know, threw off the shackles from a previous country that was oppressing us. We started our own, and then we've passed some amendments to it over time. And it's kind of improved the overall fundamental system a little bit. But like the great experiment, as the US has been called for a couple hundred years, like 
we've run the experiment at this point. You know what I mean? Like it's, we can, we can start introducing new things to the experiment. Uh, and I don't think that we have that mentality as a country yet, though. I see a lot of it in like the DeFi space. I see a lot of it in crypto. I see a lot of it in like frontier tech, like Tesla or SpaceX. I hope that we can contribute a lot to that too. And it's this, com it's this really cool combination. Like you're talking about of like, yeah, I want to legitimately do really cool things. I also want to make it accessible and affordable, affordable to people. And I'm not going to do it at anything less than the fastest, hardest possible pace. Like life is short. Let's go do it. Uh, that's what makes life fun. And it, it's, it's kind of strange to me. I don't want to say this too much more, but like, it's a little bit of a dig. Like it's kind of strange to me that Silicon Valley isn't the place leading that. Like that's mm -hmm. what I thought it was growing up. Uh, and I think there is a little bit of that here, but it's, it's largely over-rotated immensely to software and SaaS now because it's so repeatable, it's so predictable. And that's why you have all these, you know, tiny million dollar seed funds and rolling funds and all whatever the new concept is at any given point. Every person who's an influencer on Twitter now says, I have a million dollar fund and I'm investing 25 to 50K checks. They're, they're investing those 25 to 50K checks largely into the same companies of the same people they already knew who are doing, again, software and SaaS products. And I, I am, again, I'm not against toys and against cool products, but there is a much larger class of things that are also cool that we could be working on that I call the, mm -hmm. the meaningful fundamentals. Like, let's work on the meaningful fundamentals. People need water, food, shelter, housing, healthcare. They need limbs. They need to not die. Like, there's very th cool things you can do in those spaces too, right? Like, we're working on human body 2.0. Literally, we're creating a new human body. If you don't think that's cool, I think you're crazy, but I respect that crazy. <laughs> but like, you can do cool things in these spaces that aren't dry, boring things, you know? No, and no, I love I love the rant. And I think it's it makes a lot of sense. And it's it's almost like, you know, you said there's got to be a certain type of crazy. It's almost like I wish that you didn't have to be crazy to, to do a startup, right? I wish you could just, because you do have to be a little crazy. You have to take a huge risk. And you know, sometimes it's not, it's people that have the ability to fall back on something that take these risks. Cause it's, yes, there's a risk and there's, you know, the chance that you set yourself back five, 10 years, but you might not be like, Hey, I'm not going to have like food, water, shelter. Right. But there's certain people that are like, what are you talking about? Startup? What? Like, I'm, I'm trying to just <laughs> yeah. like, what are you talking about? I'm trying to like, just figure this job out and figure out my next thing. And, and that's unfortunate. Yeah. And so like you're saying, there's, there's so much government money that's being used for other things that it's like, why isn't there like a hundred billion dollar fund that anyone can apply to that we can go through quickly and it gets funded. And it's like you said, non SaaS software oriented, you know, same old thing that Silicon Valley kind of has on lock and does really well, let them create those products. But what about these other things, right? That, that doesn't seem like a very, I mean, like hearing you talk about those funds from earlier, I was like, as an entrepreneur that's been now in the game for 10 years, I still didn't even, I didn't even know about those things. And I think that that's mm -hmm. something that's crazy that other people should know about because I think there's a lot of people, I mean, I know Google does certain things where it's like, Hey, you can work a certain percentage of your time on something else, but are people yeah. really doing that? Right. And if they are like, can they take it to the next level? Cause like you're saying, you need to, you need to commit fully and hundred percent. If you want to do something, you need to be that crazy to where you're saying, once you commit and you jump, other people are like, Whoa, Tyler's, Dollars really going to go at this full time? Like this shit's crazy. And yeah, then they follow <laughs> because they believe it's real too. Yeah, to your point, that you, it is weird that you have to be crazy to do that. Why is that right. the abnormal thing? For sure. And also, you know, like for example, like I saw Paul Graham tweeting yesterday, and he was tweeting about like 
uh, or he's, I think he's replying to someone else about like MBAs. And he's basically saying like, MBAs are good if you just want to manage products, but like, you know, they're not good for like driving new product innovation. And I was just kind of like, wait, what? Like, first of all, they absolutely are. Like startups aren't the, don't have a lock on all business innovation. There's tons of other industries exist that exist in the country. Uh, consumer packaged goods, for example, like any number of things that you have in your home right now, all the stuff in your kitchen, in your bathroom, all the products you use, toothpaste, shampoo, silverware, most of those are designed and, and innovated by like MBAs uh, and, and the people who work with them, not just MBAs, but the people who work at these companies. I'm sort of like, that was a weird statement. Um, but it- I mean, what product, a larger, what product doesn't have innovation, right? Like what product do you just work on and it stays the same forever? That's like almost like a null statement. But yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't want to interrupt. <laughs> no, I, I think it's a fair <laughs> point. I think there probably also are like yeah. products that just stagnate and maybe we can make fun of them. But even then, like, so what? They're stagnating. That's their choice, right. I guess. Uh, right. uh, but I think it ties into a larger thing, uh, a larger trend, which is, so like Y Combinator was this really cool concept when it came out. What? How long ago was that? Now? Like 15 or 20 years? At least, yeah. Yeah. Um, and back then, you know, do you remember how much money they gave people back then? Is it similar to what it is now or is it a lot oh, less? Way less. Was it? Yeah, it was. I don't even know if the starting amount was 20K, but after the first year, it was like the first several batches, they got 20K for the team. Was that still with like, do they do a similar thing where there's like a note on the side too? Or no. They so what happened money. was it was 20K and the assumption was you would move to uh, Palo Alto for the summer uh, when you were in school and for students, sure. 20 K is pretty compelling. Uh, if you're going to go back to school probably anyway. Cool. And that made sense back then. Yeah. But now that's not what we're doing now. What we're doing now is startups are a thing. Everyone understands them. That ecosystem exists. The problem is not, can we fund students for a summer? The problem is, can we fund two or three people, let's say, who are the right people to work on this in whatever circumstances they require. And it's not just for a summer, because if you're not just a student, you're either leaving a job or you're working at the same time as a job, and you probably can't have a full-time job if you're gonna do something like Y Combinator, so you have to leave your job. And if you're leaving your job, circling all the, back to, all the way back to the thing you said earlier, you're giving up your benefits. More importantly, you're giving up your guarantee of a salary and security. And especially in the Bay Area, it just doesn't, the calculus doesn't make sense. It's just so weird to me that we haven't advanced it to the next logical conclusion now, which is say you have three founders, they live in a house together, let's just say, which is probably also unrealistic, somewhere in the Bay Area, they're paying, let's say between three of them, just average a thousand each, 3K a month for rent. So that's 36K a year. That alone is already more than the 20K they originally gave, but they give whatever it is, 120 or 150 now. So that's just rent, plus then you need food, then the ability to experiment, plus all these other things. Like that's that's barely enough for three people living in the same house for one to run a one-year experiment on the thing that they're trying. Let alone now introduce the concept of like single parents, people not living together, people who have mortgages they have to pay, people who can't leave their job because that's way too risky. It's just we haven't kind of fully moved over to the new world with all these conclusions yet, which seems seems weird to me. And it's also kind of why I respect, you know, a lot of this new innovation from people that aren't really being talked about yet in, in the Bay Area and other places that are like, there's, 
there's this, I don't even know if there's a word for this concept yet, but there are basically investors now who will just say to like founders, like, what do you need? And then like, we'll just give that to you. And it's not about this traditional like seed round or a round. It's like, I like the idea. Let's make sure we can fund your team for a year and not just survive, but thrive. What does that take? And maybe that's 200K or 400K. And then they do that. And that makes way more sense because that's how you actually get the at bat. You know, it's not, you don't, you start from what they need, not from some arbitrary limit. Yeah. And I, I think you brought up a good point of like, why is innovation, why does it have to be done by only people that can afford to live on, you know, that have to live in a house together that's 3K a month with, which can't be a nice place up where, up where you're at, up in like Silicon Valley. Right. So it's like, <laughs> you're forcing yeah. this and it's got to be young people that can afford to do this, that can just work 24 seven. Right. I think there's so much innovation that could still come from people that are a little bit older, right. That might be a little bit more established that have ideas, but then also have the ability to execute. I think a small team of, you know, maybe people that are like five to seven years into their, you know, into their career, or maybe even a little bit farther. I mean, maybe go even higher than that. You can sometimes do a lot more with those teams. And it's, it's just because they have the experience, right? It doesn't mean that they're going to do better, yeah. right? The competitive advantage of being, I think younger is just, Hey, I could, I could work 20 hours where you can only work 10 because you have family or you have take your kids to a soccer game or whatever you're doing, but it doesn't mean that the person that's only working 10 can't work smarter. And so I think there's a gap there yeah. of innovation that's not there. And like you're saying, like 120 K it's not, that's even not enough. Right. It's like, it's just, and, and I mean, I know the game for a lot of those accelerators is bring as many people in as possible because, you know, the more people and the more ideas, someone's going to figure it out versus saying, Hey, if every cohort only had like for a tech stars, it's like, Hey, instead of 10, we're going down to five and we're going to take that money. Mm -hmm. We're going to double down on everyone there. It's more upfront work, but I think it's such a guessing game sometimes with startups that it's like, you just don't know. You can't, interview a bunch of people for two months and know which ones they're going to be successful. You're just guessing. Yeah. Which is why it's a numbers game. And I get that too. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, it's not, it's not about just kind of like, you know, crapping on everything that exists right now. I think they're, these programs yeah. are good and I'm glad they yeah. exist. It's, it's just kind of like, let's, let's keep moving for sure. The, the thing that I think seems craziest to me is just the concept of ramen profitability. Like I just reject that as a, can I, I don't know if I can swear on this. Can I swear on this? I yeah, know. that's fine. <laughs> ramen profitability is the dumbest. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's ramen profitability to me is the dumbest fucking concept. Like that's so insulting. And I get that where it came from and it's with students and that's fun when you're like in a certain circumstance, but we should not be using that term anymore. That is insane. That's, that's so dangerous. Living as a, as a startup founder or any kind of entrepreneur should not be dangerous. It should not be precarious. And also, I kind of, to me, you know, that strikes me as sort of like how, you know, the, like, like big employers will be like, oh, you know, you don't, you don't want more money. That's going to like create too many issues for you. It's like, wait, what? That's a, that's an insane thing to tell someone. Uh, it's that this is the equivalent of that. It's just like, why would you tell someone that they'll work better when they only have a limited amount of capital? We, we also just know from like a hundred years of psychological studies that people work better when they don't fear for their lives. Yeah. So you shouldn't be just surviving. You should be thriving. And I think you can absolutely, they're not mutually exclusive concepts. You can have someone who's paid a decent wage and has a good living and still 
works really, really hard. Working hard doesn't come from your back being against the wall and not knowing you, you know, where the next meal is going to come from. That's an insane concept to me. Yeah, the amount of stress that that you could take on is is only there's only so much, and that's and I mean it's yeah. like founder conflict and stress and anxiety and money. I mean these are the reasons that a lot of these products they fail and these companies fail. It's not because the product didn't have the ability to start getting traction. It just takes a long time. I mean I think people forget that like an Uber was was out in like 2009, right? But it didn't even come close to becoming mainstream until like 2013, 2014. I mean, now we're talking five or six years ago when they were starting to expand city to city. And it's because it takes time. It took four years to get that adoption. Like, you're, you know, if you're if you're two yeah. and a half years into your startup right now or three years into your startup right now and you're thinking to yourself like, or you're thinking like, man, I'm going to do this. Say you're six months in your startup and you're like, shit, two and a half years from now, I'm still going to be in the same position I am today. Like that doesn't feel good. Right. So it's like if you're saying if you're just bleeding money and you're not and you and you don't have personal runway to get there, you're not going to get there. And so the world will never see that product. Right. Or maybe yeah. not see it the way you want to execute it. And that's just I think that's kind of what we're getting at is there's a gap there. Yeah, big gap for sure. And I think it's an exciting time to see that there are new modes of funding these things. It's still a little precarious, but. Like if you, I, I, I would definitely encourage them and I wouldn't discourage them. Like if someone wants, if someone wanted to do something with frontier tech or something really, really crazy, I would tell them like, absolutely go for it. Right. And then just try to find those people who share your crazy and just start closing checks as you can. And if you don't know how to do that, DM me or someone like me or you and just be like, Hey, how do I do this? Like literally, what am I supposed to do here? You know? Yeah. I think that is underestimated too, is just reaching out to, to founders and just like the standard Hey, I, you know, look at people that are maybe five years ahead of you and just a, a simple reach out, something simple that's yeah. that you can respond to quickly in an email and everyone. And that's why it's like, as a founder, I like to try to find investors who were founders and they, they can feel what you feel and they understand if, if someone's never started something from scratch, it's almost impossible to kind of create that rapport and have them understand what it's like to go through what you're going through. So it's like any solid founder that actually is worth their grain of salt will, will definitely you know, we'll reach out to you and be like, Hey, this is, this is what I would do. I would take 50, I would take 15 minutes with anyone that reached out to me at any point. And I would never, I don't think I'll ever stop doing that because you need to give people the light of, you know, you can do this. You can do it. Yeah. You just have to. Yeah. And a lot make, of people will do that. Yeah. yeah. I, I think there's so many stories of people over time who are really, you know, well-known people. Steve jobs used to just respond to random emails that he'd get and, you know, a lot of people who are in positions of power do that stuff. Uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff tied into how to fund startups. I think at the end of the day, you just need to find people who share the crazy. Like I, I hear a lot of people say the thing you were just saying about, you know, I have a preference for getting investors who are former operators or founders themselves. And I do think it's good if you can have people like that um, investing you because they'll kind of get the journey. I think at the same time, that is a little bit of, gatekeeping in itself you know i think i know i know for example you're not saying like only take investors like that but there are people like that who would say like only take investors who are former operators or founders and that's just strange to me because if someone thinks what you're doing is really really cool and they want to write you a check like let them do that you know it's it's your job to be smart with the money not their job like yes technically right they need to make investments but you're the one who has to build the company and the product and the business and so you want them you want you to be smart not them to be smart but also, taking 
taking checks from people. I think a lot of people who aren't startup founders don't really understand what that is. Like they don't, they've never done that before. They don't understand. Like you can just use like safes and convertible notes. Like you were talking about earlier. Yeah. You can just like, yeah. you can literally, if someone could just DM you right now on Twitter and they were like, Hey Joe, like I want to put 25 K in your, in your company. You'd be like, okay, cool. Like let's do a safe and I'll take it right now. And you can wire it over. Let's just boom, done. Uh, you know, you don't have to go like, you have a ton of legal work done and have a bunch of lawyers and these things help, but you can do yeah. that. But again, like people just don't know that. And if you don't know that, then how are you going to possibly be successful in doing that? You know, you just, you, there's so much information gatekeeping even. Yeah. And I think you brought up a good point. I think the, the point I was trying to make is almost like humbleness is really the only prerequisite, Right. Like if you're, if you're, especially with something like what you're working on in frontier tech, which, you know, is a new word. Now I'm just picking it up. I love it is, you know, if you're humbly trying to get involved because you want to learn that, like, that is it. That's all you need is people that are saying, okay, I'm not, you know, maybe I have an operator. I don't understand anything, but I think this is cool. I think what you're doing is interesting. I want to try to get involved. Like that's by all means, like, you know, hop on board. And, and yeah, I think, you know, as far as the, like almost like a rolling round. I think it's like going through this, like this last time too, it was like, there was, especially COVID, I think changed a lot of this with like, you know, people try to use that kind of like fall deadline of like, Hey, the round's closing, you know, you better hop on board. It's almost like, well, the round never has to close or never has to open. It just can just keep going. If someone's if find something interesting, it's like maybe the valuation goes up, maybe it goes down. Maybe like it just kind of depends. If you find people that are interesting, like you're saying, this paperwork is simple now and people could fill it out. You come to an agreement and you move forward and that's an okay thing. But yes, I, it before it used to be like, hey, I'm, I'm raising this round. It's closing. We got these people in. Let's do this. And it, yeah. it's like, then you feel like you're, oh, I'm just, I'm raising and then I'm done. And then it's like, well, wait you know, now I have to think about cash flow again. I'm going to have to raise again in the future, potentially. It's like, shit, now I have to tell people it's open again four months later, what's going on there. And it's like, it's just a weird way, I think, to think about it. But it's it's hard to, I always say that the best way to be a first time founder is be a second time founder. Mm -hmm. You know, there's just, there's so much you, you can't know. Yeah. And investors and uh, partners and a lot of people will uh, intellectually flex on you in those situations because they know that they have the leverage because they know how to do it. You know, it's so like, we don't talk about this nearly enough in the Bay Area. Uh, like investors, for example, like traditional VC investors, you know, they do, they see, let's call it a thousand deals a year. And then they do maybe 10 to 20. You as a founder, especially a first time founder, you do zero deals a year. You, you, see, you see zero deals a year. You see your one deal and you have no idea what that process looks like. This, by the way, is why there is so much investors investing in other investors when they're first time founders. Uh, it's actually like kind of this cheat hack path that you can use. Like if you know you want to be a founder or entrepreneur at some point, uh, you just go work at an investment fund, at a VC fund. And then when you start your company, you'll probably guarantee to have at least a few of the partners there who want to invest and they'll get some of the other people to invest. It's pretty uh, messed up, but it works. Uh, and I right. see it happen a lot, but also, you know, if, if you don't know that stuff, you know, how could you possibly be expected? To yeah, that's like such an in, insider baseball right there of just knowing and yeah. then having access to that and getting access to it, which is, again, the gap, right? Like being even being a second time founder, the gap to even get there, whether it's a startup that worked or the startup that didn't work, 
you know, there are no failures. It's still a huge gap and a risk. And, you know, you go through a life cycle as far as like your ability and like maybe getting the energy to go after it again. And some people never go after it again because they get burned so hard. Um, so it's like, man, even to kind of push through two. And now I think for you, I mean, shit, if we, if we count the first computer hardware, you know, company, I mean, <laughs> yeah. you're, you're now racking yeah. all the way in there. You're five or six. I don't know at this point, but well, that was the funny thing about Bebo too with our last company is, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but Bebo was actually an idea lab. And so we iterated through, you know, 10 or 20 different products over the years from, from Blab, which was, you know, kind of the predecessor to a lot of products like StreamYard and products like this. Yeah. I remember you talking yeah. about Blab. Uh, that was like maybe four or five years ago. That was a while back, but maybe it was more than that. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. That's awesome uh four or five yeah um yeah. and that was that was fun right i mean that was like a video social network and you know got a few million users you know on it and ultimately pivoted it to some other stuff and we went through just tons of different products and so i, I think the point as a founder is you want to try to get as many at bats as possible because there is no school for this stuff and there's no practice if you want to be a great doctor you go to med school if you want to be a great athlete you probably start playing sports from a young age and you get practice and you have coaches and you have teams and then you do other practices and like you're constantly learning from people who are better than you how to do it. If you wanna be a great entrepreneur, what do you do? You basically just start something and then fail at it and maybe you reach out to some mentors and stuff, but it, you know, there's nowhere near as much of either an academic schooling for it uh, outside of kind of MBAs and some entrepreneurship 101 stuff. And there's not really practice in the same sense that there is in athletics where you're literally like all day, every day practicing the things that you want to do. And that's why I think a lot of these, you know, concepts that we've gotten in the past couple of years from, you know, what was it, Bill, was it Bill Walsh's book, who he wrote Score Takes Care of Itself. Uh, and some of these books, you know, like pe people are starting to codify a lot of really powerful concepts in, in business. And they have been for a long time, you know, high output management, like still an iconic book to this day. But in terms of like, how do you go from zero to one? That is also a concept that came from Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One. Like we just, we're, we're to your point about cryptos in the first inning, like startups are really still in their first inning too. And boy, crypto, oh my gosh, for sure still in its first inning. I think it's, you know, for, for guys like you who've been in it for a while, it's easier to see. But to a lot of people in the rest of the world, like my, I'm from Minnesota originally. My family, when I talk to them in Minnesota about crypto, like they still have no idea, right? They, they literally don't even know how to pronounce it. Is it Ethereum or is it Ethereum? Like, I don't know what it is. Yeah, and, and that's so wild. to them, wild it's to me. a crazy it, concept still. Yeah. No, we're still, we're still super early with some of this stuff. And it's, you know, and there are no experts in crypto. I mean, it's like, you know, if you were, you were mining Bitcoin back in 2011 or whatnot, like you are, yeah. you're, the, you're been in the longest, like that's the longest. Imagine if like, the the old you know the oldest doctor was 30 right like 10 years in that 10 years in the workforce it's like there are no experts right and so it's like it's such an early industry that you can jump in and you can be an expert quote unquote whatever we want to call that in the industry pretty quickly because no one else is looking at it and so it's a risk but it's also just a new and it's a global industry i mean you know we have people coming in on dm speaking all sorts of different languages there's 200 different countries that people come to our site from and localization wow. is a huge deal. Telegrams groups are a huge deal. Like social is a huge deal. And you know, it's, it's just like another, again, another democratization of like technology and the beginning of something new that, you know, potentially like, like you're saying there, I mean, you can create a micro economy that would say, Hey, we're only going to invest in 
you know, artificial limbs, if that's the correct terminology to use for it. And, you know, we're going to have this token and this token means that you have access to, you know, potentially some ecosystem that these, these, mm -hmm. you know, the arms will create. And you might have 5 million people that can invest a dollar or invest 50 cents in a microtransaction that you couldn't do that before. That's still a substantial amount of money to be invested and to be now passionate follower of what you're doing. And that's the most interesting yeah. part is the community that's being created globally, not just in one space and of people that want to contribute. You know, we, I, we talk to projects all the time on our live stream where they'll, they'll be out there and be like, we have 20 or 30 people that are working that work on like localizing Twitter channels in Spanish and they're not paying anyone. They're, they're not even paying these people. These people are just sure, contributing yeah. because of how excited yeah. they are about the technology and sure they buy it. They buy some, but they're using their own money to buy it and then they're contributing. It's like, think about if you bought a Nike yeah. shirt and then you just drove around with like huge Nike stuff all over your car and you're just yelling at people like, <laughs> buy Nike, you need so much yeah. Nike. No one would ever do that. What industry has that? Yeah. You know, and so that's I, the, the cool part that I get to watch. If, if you grew up on the internet, I think you kind of understand that more natively. You know, when we, when we were growing up and there was sort of that Wild West era of the internet, the crypto feels a little bit like now, Mm -hmm. that that it's easier to understand like oh yeah there are people who just contribute to things for free like i used to do i used to participate in tons of forums and message boards and you know all that kind of stuff and, and help I was, up, like, I was an admin on the rainbow six online gaming network forum back in the day oh before someone hacked my shit and and, st <laughs> and it, like stole my password because i like you know this is back god this is yeah oh, 15 so this is probably 99 2000 or somewhere around there. I was like one of the first people on my block to have like ethernet, like a cable modem. And it was like, Ooh, yeah, yeah, I was like, I don't know if you know this. I was like legitimately like top 10, like rainbow six clans, like in the world back then. I don't know. What? If you know How that. have you never mentioned? No, I didn't know that. How was that not <laughs> was like the leading thing in your Twitter bio? <laughs> <laughs> this was way back in the day though. This was like the original, like Tom Clancy. Like, I mean, I, like I probably like my fingers, like on a keyboard could still, do like a strafe and like throw a frag like still to this day i probably have like the For muscle sure. memory of how to do that but yeah i guess you're like gaming and contributing like there was no reason like i would create little like flash backgrounds to like for all the different you know things oh, that were yeah. out there in the different clans but that's you're right that's like an economy within an economy of people that are passionate because they love what it gives them and so that's crypto. Wow. Well, evidently we need to run some squads in Warzone. I didn't even know that this was a thing, but I, I don't know if you know this, but I built a gaming company for the past several years before Adam Lynn, So No, I know. And I actually, I didn't know yeah. how much into gaming you were until I saw you, you were a lot yeah. of like the conferences and stuff like that and building a, a piece there. And, and in the crypto space, it was very gamer heavy as well, like at the beginning. And it was just Sure. You know, something kind of like called a non-fungible token, which is like, you know, basically having a token that is, you know, a, a collectible or from a game or something that you're kind of collecting and putting out there. I mean, gamers were very early on in our space and they are some of the piece that push this forward. That's why a lot of the chat groups are on Discord or, you know, mm -hmm. something like Telegram is because that's that the overlap there um, is is pretty heavy. So. I, I wanted to go back to one thing you just touched on, which is a little bit of a hard turn from gaming. Uh, Do it. But you were talking about the 
sort of like lost productivity and creativity from a lot of this stuff. You know, you're, you're saying like, imagine if you were a 30 year old doctor and you were the most experienced doctor in the world, you know, that'd be yeah. crazy, crazy concept. Yeah. But like that level of craziness is what I see when I look at how the world treats health and life and death today. Like to me, that's what I mean when I say like, I want to live forever and I want to cure death because first of all, it should just be our choice. Like I should be able to choose when I die in my opinion, but also just massive lost creativity and innovation and productivity and creation because people die. Like we're basically restarting everything every 80 years on average, but it's just rolling because it's everyone's individually dying at their own 80 years. And then just thankfully, basically, you know, we have populations of people. So we don't lose that knowledge because people can put it online or they can spread it to other people. But like, if there were 10 human beings on the planet and they all lived in 10 different areas, not near each other, there would never be innovation. The only reason there's innovation is because we have populations of people and things in aggregate generally move forward. But it's sort of like cell death inside your body. Like humans are just dying constantly and everything is only moving forward in this aggregate. It's, it seems crazy to me that like, why do we accept that? Like, not even from like a freedom of choice perspective, but just think of how much better we could be doing with people who gain, you know, you, when you're 50, when you're 80 years old, you're going to have so much more knowledge about how the world works and so much more wisdom, ideally, right? As long as you're not being a jerk, <laughs> but like, imagine what you could have in 200 years or a thousand years or a hundred thousand years, the things that you could learn and you know, create because you have finally, you know, so much more visibility in, into how the world works and how products work and how science works, and how thought works and philosophy. There's just, there's so much we lose constantly because we're just restarting over and over. And when I look around and see like Congress is slow, for example, like that's one of the reasons why, because it's stacked with a bunch of old people who just die constantly every five or 10 years. It's so crazy. Yeah. You said a couple of interesting things there. It's like, a first off, imagine what a startup would look like from someone who's 500 years old, right? If you're 500 years old, what would you be creating, right? With that knowledge, which is, is insane, I think, to think about. And then also, as far as like passing knowledge on, I mean, like YouTube wasn't, like, think about how many YouTube videos there are created and added every day. Like, what does YouTube look like in 500 years? Like, what, how much content? Oh my God. Like, <laughs> yeah. that, that, to think about some of those things is insane. I, Cause it's like we, we didn't have the ability up until even like 10 years ago to pass this. Like, I, I think it's like someone like a Gary Vee who, who's, who talked about this one time with like documenting. And like, he's, he likes that he's documenting all of these lessons that he kind of talks about to people and this inspiration so that mm -hmm. his kids can see it in case he gets hit by a bus tomorrow. Right. And so it's like, yeah. I mean, do you think that like that consciousness side to you, I mean, people talk about it today. It's like, Hey, I've written enough Gmail emails in my life that it knows exactly like, and then all I'd have to do is like recreate my voice with like a mm -hmm. couple, like, they can recreate your voice now for, I think, um, you know, all you have to do, you can like go with like five recording sessions and they can basically get everything, like any word that you would say, like you'd say, like yeah. you'd say all the letters, all the numbers, make a couple of sounds, inflections, and they can create it. You basically could recreate Tyler today with your Gmail, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, not literally today. Yeah. I mean, it will happen, right? Obviously it will happen again. You just look at where we started and where we are now and just keep trending that and we'll get there at some point. 
it seems to me more like, um, do you know what the ship of Theseus is? No, I don't. So the ship of Theseus, yeah. Uh, very, very relevant to sort of the stardust background we have here, actually. <laughs> so the ship of Theseus is a philosophical problem, basically. And the problem is, okay, so there's this, 2,000 years ago, there's this boat. Uh, Theseus's boat, this guy. He had this wooden boat, and then they take this boat and they put it in a museum. And then over time, some of the masts start to rot and the side starts to rot and the bow starts to rot and they keep replacing pieces of it over time. And over hundreds of years, now every part at some point has rotted and been replaced by some new wooden piece. So the question is, is that the same boat or is that a new boat? Because it literally has none of the original parts, but it was replaced slowly over time and also it still looks the same, but the, pro the point of the philosophical problem is not to like get too in the weeds and how that relates to consciousness, but just to say like, yes, indeed, things can be both the same and different as they change over time. With consciousness specifically, I think there's actually like a really easy answer to this question. Um, or like, or like uploading your consciousness to the cloud, for example, like kind of the thing you're talking about. Like right. say there was some, you know, Google container that I could put my brain up into and then I could live in the cloud. Okay, well, if you basically just did that instantly, uh, what you would do is you would have created a copy of yourself. You wouldn't have yourself. You would still be in your own brain and you would have a copy of yourself in the cloud. Because unless you, also, unless you destroy the original, there's now two of you. Yeah, but it's, a clone. it's just not. Yeah, it's not. It's not two of you, right? It's just a clone. Exactly. It's a same ingredients, but it is an entirely new thing now. But I think if you think about this problem, this ship of Theseus, the point is actually consciousness is experienced over time, and so if you were to say, for example, upload yourself to the cloud, but you did it slowly at a rate where you could consciously perceive it happening, so it's sort of like uploading Joe to the cloud and you have like 100% in your body and 0% in the cloud to start. And then it goes 99% in your body and 1% in the cloud. And then now you perceive that. You perceive, you Joe perceive that you are also partially in the cloud. It's just part of who you are. And then you slowly make the transition over until you're only in the cloud, but you were able to perceive it and therefore you are the same consciousness at that point. But if you just do it instantly and you can't perceive it, then it's not a consciousness transfer. So I think that gets yeah. into some really crazy territory. I think also the next logical question after that is how quickly can you make the perception of it? Can you make the perception of it effectively instant? So then you could instantly upload yourself and you would still be the same person. So there's like, we haven't thought about that stuff nearly enough. Yeah, no, and that's actually exa exactly what I was kind of thinking about was the consciousness level of it. And, you know, now you have these two things, right? And it's almost like two boats at the same location and even a one degree, you know, offset is going to end you up in a completely different place with enough time. Mm -hmm. With time, you're in infinitely different places, right? With just the beginning of the start, the starting of just one degree difference. And so like that, that is a, it's going to be an interesting problem if we end up trying to solve it at some point. Cause it's, you know, it's also like the reality to another human. You know, if you're nine, if if it's if another human, you're six sigma ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the way there. Can oh, you right. tell the difference, right? Like, are if you're in a Ferrari and the Ferrari's firing on almost all cylinders, but you're used to being in a Ford Fiesta, like, can you mm -hmm. even tell the acceleration difference? Because you know, so if someone's uploaded into the cloud and it's really good, 
you know, is it going to be, is the other, is the other human? Cause we're going to be so nascent at that point, even going to be able to tell unless they yeah. also are part of it. It's the, it, that's the new Turing test for sure. we need a yeah. name for that. But I, I think this is just personal opinion. I just think humans have way too much of a human centric view of this stuff. And if you step all the way back and you say, okay, humans are animals. There are thousands of species of animals on this one planet. There were also thousands of species of animals before we existed. There were dinosaurs, like literally there was another dominant species on this life planet, on this planet, millions of years before us. Humans uh -huh. didn't exist. Uh, if you take, if you step back and take that view and you say, okay, that's one planet amongst one solar system in one galaxy, in one universe, and just roll with the punches here for a second to say, let's just assume statistically there is other life in the universe. And let's say that we've, you know, the universe has been around for 14 billion years and humans in their modern form have existed for about 10,000 years socially, hundred thousand years evolutionarily. That's an extremely small amount of time that humans have existed yeah. on this planet in this universe. And my point here is not to get into the standard, you know, midnight dorm room conversation of like, oh, what did, you know, were there other life forms? Is there other life in the universe? Like, let's just assume there is for a second. The point is to say, assume that there is more advanced life in the universe far beyond what we are. And so our consciousness, when we talk about consciousness, we sort of, when people say consciousness, we, we're defining it as if it's this like one objective thing that exists. When in reality, what we're talking about is one species is current perception after a few thousand years of evolution on one planet. And like, what would we define consciousness as a million years from now if we still exist? And what will humans look like then? And it would be defined very differently. So I, I, I think consciousness, I would actually say does not exist. Like in its objective definition that we give it, uh, it is a constantly moving target and it, 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 it can have many different implementations and it will change even for humans over time. And it has changed for humans over time over the past several thousand years. We didn't have this level of consciousness always, just like many other animals don't now. I mean, it, it, it's, not, it's not even just about like, uh, you know, improving versus degrading, it's just changing. You know, I think a lot of people, last thing I'll say on this is like, I think a lot of people think of evolution as like an upgrade. Evolution is not an upgrade. We use this term as if it's synonymous for upgrading. It's not, it's just adapting to your environment so that you're better at surviving in it. You're just changing constantly to suit the environment. Evolution is not like X-Men where it's like, now I've got laser eyes and I can control. Right. You know, if that's what the environment called for, then maybe that's right. the where you would go. But if the environment's calling for something else, maybe you are downgraded, right? Maybe yeah. if there's only say like everyone got wiped away. Now there's only 50 people on the planet. You're, we're going to look much different a thousand, five thousand, ten thousand years in the future in that oh, scenario yeah. versus a, you know, the amount of oxygen in the environment. I think they talked a lot about the amount of oxygen and it can sustain a larger life force. And that's why mm -hmm. bugs were bigger, plants were bigger, everything was bigger, different amount of oxygen, right? And so there's all of these different factors playing into it that, like you're saying, it's not always going up. Maybe it's going sideways, maybe it's going down. We just don't know. Yeah, there were, I think there was just an article in the last week that revealed um, they, they found evidence of primates that were three meters tall. Like that's gigantic. That's our Bigfoot. Some, yeah, literally. Some of our primate predecessors were Bigfoot. <laughs> Bigfoot <were> exists. <laughs> 10, 12 feet tall. Yeah. <laughs>
And, uh, you know, think of humans as it, like, could we be that tall at some point? I remember the, the first time I ever went to um, the Great Wall of China when I was studying in China and we were walking on top of the wall. And if you haven't been to the Great Wall of China, have you ever been there? I have not. So there's this really interesting experience that everyone almost immediately goes through, which is you start walking on the top of the Great Wall of China and you have to duck, you have to go through all these alcoves that are at each you know, stopping point. And when you go through them, they're about four, four feet, four and a half feet tall. So you have to duck quite a bit to get in them. And I remember when I was studying there, I asked my professors like, why are these all so short? Was this like for more protection? And she said, no, that's how tall people were when they built it. It's like, yep. oh, right, because nutrition wasn't nearly as good as it is now. Of course. Okay. It makes sense. Right. Sort of just, a, you know, mind blowing concept. Yeah, no, it's, and then you think about the different subset of people, you know, and, and how close, I mean, travel used to be very difficult, right? Like getting, like getting across America used to be like, you know, we're going to lose 10% of the people on the way. You know, it's, it's like, a, you know, imagine if you're like, Hey, I'm going to New York, like it's going to take three months and like half of you die. <laughs> Just, you yeah. know, and that, that's like yeah. not even that many people ago. That's like, you know, and so to think about like a thousand and two thousand years ago, you know, there's yeah. people in certain areas that evolve slightly to be different. Right. I mean, it, it the evidence is right in front of our faces. And that's what always like mind boggles me when people have, whether it's a philosoph philosophical argument about some of these things is like the evidence, you actually have it. It's right here. Right. People look different. Done. Game over. There's, that ends the argument right there. And so it's like as. Yeah. People, and certain people adapt to different things and it takes time. And now that we're all kind of coming together, it's like you would think that, you know, two things coming together sometimes would make a stronger, more better thing on the outset. But if you merge these two things maybe too early and there's too many differences in them, it's almost like kind of mating two animals that don't coalesce. It's it mm. it doesn't work. Right. So I'm not saying I mean, humans are biologically very close, but if someone from a very obscure area in the world were to marry and have a child with someone from another very obscure area in the world, it doesn't necessarily mean that the offspring from that is going to be something that maybe is like you're saying a better, stronger version. It could potentially oh, sure. have, there could be other issues in there. And I, I you know, and I'm not going to get into the, there's a, some stories that I know of people that have had these things happen and they, they're from two very, very different areas. And there's, like us, like there's tumors, there's other things that they're battling in their life. And they think it's because of how different they are. But, you know, a lot of a little anecdotal, not, not as much evidence Boy. there, but it's, it's something yeah. to kind of think about, you know? Absolutely. I, I think it is something to think about, but, and I think it just tying it back to everything we've been talking about in this conversation, you know, human body 2.0 crypto, all these things at the same time are very recent experiments, extremely yes. recent, last 10, 20 years experiments. And in the grand scheme of human history, that is a blip inside of a tiny blip inside of an even tinier blip. I mean, it's, it is not much time to try these things. And if I could sort of like double down on any one thing that you said in this conversation, by the way, because I really agree with this, not that we have to like double down on something here, but Things that are worth doing take time. And in some senses, I think we've over-rotated a little bit as a in the Bay Area culture to move fast and break things like you're talking about. And that mm -hmm. is good, you wanna do that. But Pixar doesn't make a movie in three months. They take four years every time. Uber did not immediately catch on 
I remember when Parker Thompson tweeted, I think it was when he was still tweeting a startup L Jackson years ago, but he, he was tweeting about, you know, overnight successes happen sometime bet between day 2000 and 2500. And you have to put in a lot of time. That doesn't mean delude yourself and lie to yourself that you're working on something while you do it. Make sure you're doing the right thing in the right way. Yeah, but they're not yeah. mutually exclusive concepts. Yeah. Yeah, no, great. I think that's a great advice for for people that are getting started too, is it's it's okay that it's going to take time and it doesn't, there are no failures and just learning and adapting. And even if you try to do your own startup for the first year, you're going to learn more than you would learn in five, maybe 10 years, maybe ever working in the same cubicle, right? Like you're, you're going to learn and you're going to adapt and find new things. And I think, I think that's a great piece of advice that, that good things take time. You know, I mean, look at what you're working on and, and look at the time it's, you know, it's going to take to finally get to a place where it can be in the hands of everyone that wants one. Right. And hopefully at a, at a price that's affordable for people and literally, literally, yeah, in their hands. <laughs> literally on them. You know? so yeah. I think it's, it's a good lesson though, for people to know. And it's like, like building something like building a, a beautiful chair, right. Or a nice meal or something. Those, those small details that last 5% makes the difference. You know, it makes a difference between something that anyone else can do and what, how do you make it perfect and special and beautiful for you and other people will appreciate that. And, you know, we like another, like, to bring it back to movies, because that's where we started. It's like something like an avatar, right? James Cameron is, you know, he's going to make two through 12 all in the same shot, which is good for him. But, <laughs> you know, it's, I'm, I'm sure that it's going to be the most beautiful cinematic experience that some people will ever see. And I don't, I, I'd rather have it in five years than three years if he's going to take a shortcut, right? And it's yeah. beautiful things take time, but they're, they're pieces of art that we get to pass and knowledge that we get to pass the next generation. And like you're saying, like the longer we can live, the the more knowledge that we can pass in, in a better way, the better off we are entirely as a society. So it's a good lesson, man. Tyler did, did it. Not, we did an hour 40. Woo! You want to do another hour 40? Let's go right I appreciate now. you doing this, man. I'm, I'm going to have to hit the restroom, though. I'm just, I, you know, I had, like, two coffees before this. I knew we were talking about, yeah. like, your arm. And I was like, all right, Tyler's going to just school me on all this. I need coffee, and I need two alpha brains. What else do I need? Beast 12, B6. Um, but, no, man, I appreciate you you hopping on and doing this. And, um, you know, for everyone listening, we'll, this will be on the podcast. I'll, I'll toss it on here in the next couple of days. We can get after it. But tell us, just tell anyone how they, like, how they can help. How would they get involved? What are you guys looking for? How would people kind of get involved or help right now? Yeah. First of all, likewise, great, like love just talking about this stuff. You know, I love nerding out about this stuff. So this is a fun little <laughs> nerd out session. I, uh, boy, did we cover some stuff too that was well outside of what we're doing. And I love it. This is great. Uh, this is why I love talking with you about this stuff, man. This is why you have such a good show here too. Uh, okay. So if people uh, share the crazy, if they want to, either find out if they share the crazy or if they know they do, we're just at Adam Limbs everywhere, A-T-O-M-L-I-M-B-S. And it's, you know, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. And definitely if I had a recommendation, I would say the best thing you can do is join the Facebook group because we have this incredible Facebook group uh, that's like exclusive updates about what we're doing. So it's actually the only place where we give like behind the scenes concept art and mm. exclusive updates before anywhere else as well as like invites to come to the Adam headquarters and play with the arm. Not even whether you're an amputee or not, you should absolutely like come out after when it's safe after COVID and everything. Uh, yeah. 
but like that's that's the place to be for sure. And if people just are like super against Facebook for some, and reason, how do they then, find the group? Uh, they just at Adam Limbs, and then at part of the page, you can join the group. Yeah, I mean, if you just search Adam Limbs on Facebook, you'll find it. Otherwise, it's uh, Facebook.com/slash/group/slash/AdamLimbs. Yeah, cool. Yeah, awesome, man. Thank you, Tyler. I really appreciate it. I'm going to end the broadcast, and we'll chat for a second backstage. Dope.